the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Uh, this tweet from uh, former New York Times columnist Anand Gerard Haradas. It's time for this question to be front and center. Should Fox News be allowed to exist? Brain mashing as a business model shouldn't be legal. Legal. Former New York Times, former New York Times columnist. Should Fox News be allowed to exist? The model shouldn't be legal. And uh, it's not just uh, members of the media leading the charge for censorship, for the elimination of dissent. It's also those they enlist to be part of the punditocracy to uh, build out their echo chamber, including those from law enforcement, from intelligence agencies. Going back to this uh, riff last week, last week from uh, Philip Mudd, former CIA analyst and uh, now CIA, CIA uh, former CIA analyst and now CNN counterterrorism analyst, I should say. I've got to get on an airplane myself in about two weeks. And I had a friend of mine today, Don, text me. I, I, I double mask when I travel. It is a paper mask and a fabric mask. And my friend said, because you're on CNN, you got to wear a hat. And that had never occurred to me before. I got to go to an airport and, and be concerned. I'm not on the Capitol. I'm in an airport in Charlotte, North Carolina, that somebody's going to come up and berate me, maybe attack me. I think, to, to, to be clear, Don, that in some ways we are focused too much on Donald Trump. Donald Trump is representative of what is happening in America. Americans are saying, look, civil discourse doesn't matter to me. A country that was built on immigrants doesn't matter to me. Immigrants are not welcome in this country, despite the fact that I came, and myself included, came from a family of immigrants. I think the most disturbing aspect of the last four years in America is not the president. It's the president has exposed in America that most of us, and I mean more than 50%, are uncomfortable with. Uh-huh. Yeah. First of all, a cartoonish caricature of Trump supporters and projection onto Trump supporters, the posture of so many on the left in elite circles. What would Philip Mudd say to our friend, the former New York Times columnist, who doesn't think Fox News should be legal, I wonder, in his uh, Jeremiah about civil discourse? For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by Martin Gurry, former CIA analyst and author of The Revolt of the Public and the Crisis of Authority in the New Millennium. Martin Gurry, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, Dan. Happy to be here. So as a former CIA analyst, how do you react to what uh, your, uh, well, maybe he wasn't a colleague, but he certainly was in the same agency, what uh, Philip Mudd had to say? Um, wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole. I, I'm trying to figure out what that has to do with terrorism. Well, yeah, right. I mean, essentially, uh, he believes that, uh, you know, every Trump supporter is uh, somebody who uh, did or is inclined to storm the Capitol and engage in violence and and then complains about civil discourse in the same sentence. It's 
sort of uh, what you wrote about in slouching towards uh, toward post journalism, uh, de- decrying the very things that uh, the Dean Baquettes of the world at the New York Times and others engage in. Right. If you look, if you read my book, you'll see that what what this gentleman said is a fairly straightforward um, uh, articulation of elite ideals. Uh, there, there is a class of um, of people that inhabit our institutions right now that just seems to have uh, a, a panic fear of the public. Uh, I think because the internet, of course, has brought the public into such close proximity. So his views, in some ways, I mean, they were kind of remarkably incoherent. I thought, but but um, not unusual. It's it's the elites looking down and seeing what what are all those crazy people about. Uh, of course, all you got to do is go online, and you know, some of them are crazy, some of them are sane. Uh, it's a very multiple and, and, and divided public. But to the elites, they all seem like a bunch of barbarians uh, who are trying to storm uh, the citadels of, of authority. And so uh, they treat them as um, chess pieces uh, to be to manipulate. At least that's sort of the view of Matt Taibbi, him writing over at his uh, uh, blog at, at Substack talking about the coverage in the Trump years, hyping a threat for a news cycle or two, then moving to the next panic as the basis for the first one, as the basis for the first one dissipates. How many headlines were aimed at our outrage centers in the last four years that were quietly memory hold once they outlived their political utility? And he uses the example of all the, the stories with respect to the Russian collusion investigation and the allegations of Russian collusion that went nowhere uh, as an example of what he's talking about. And then when that didn't pan out, as you write about, uh, pulling this out of the memory hole for us, then Dean Beckett, the executive out of the New York Times, says, OK, well, that didn't work. The Mueller investigation didn't work. So now it's time to do race and class warfare. Yeah. And I mean, the thing, the point that I make is that it really did work for them, though. Um, you have to realize that newspapers uh, never sold news. In the old days, they sold an audience to advertisers. Mm-hmm. In these sad old days for the elites, uh, the advertisers have all gone online. So big brands and the big uh, uh, overhead companies like the New York Times have to figure out a way to stay in business. And uh, they peddled that story of, of uh, Trump-Russia you know, the conspiracies and the manipulations of fake news uh, having determined uh, the elections in 2016 to an extraordinary degree. I mean, 3,000 articles in the t- in the time period uh, in question. I mean, the way I put it is, is, is as if journalism were being conducted by uh, under the impulse of, of obsessive compulsive personality. Almost everyone, I think, virtually every one of those articles found Trump to be guilty of something, right? Uh, and so you go, well, in the end, it kind of fizzled. However, during that time, uh, digital subscriptions for the time to- for the Times skyrocketed. The Times found a new model of bringing people inside the paywall, which is not to sell news. Nobody needs news. Uh, That that is not a commodity in in the digital age. Uh, Information today is virtually infinite. So the news actually chases the reader rather the other way around. So what the New York Times found it could do was sell um, polarization, sell a cause, a creed, so that if you 
disliked Trump and you felt that Trump was this dangerous man and, and you wanted to do something about it, you would go inside uh, that, that paywall and you would you know, be told exactly how bad he was and be given good words to, to make arguments in that, in that cause. It worked for them. Uh, when when uh, 2016, uh, the, the presidential elections came rolling around, the, the Times had fewer than 1 million or maybe around 1 million digital subscribers. By 2020, they had 6 million most in the world. Now that's, by Facebook standards, a pretty puny number, but these are paying customers. Well, so they, they, yeah. they succeeded in doing what they wanted to do. When we come back with former Say analyst Martin Gurry, I want to ask uh, whether what's uh, driving the work product of the D.C. press corps is ideology is it just the new business model? Is it some combination of the two? More with Martin Gurry right after this. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. We're speaking with former CIA analyst Martin Gurry about uh, the uh, ideological disposition of the D.C. press corps. Calls now to prohibit, make illegal outlets like Fox News. And I want to pick up there because you make the point that it's uh, not just ideological, maybe not even primarily ideological. It's the business model. It is totally a business model. And an interesting question is, will it survive Donald Trump? I mean, Donald Trump was the business model. Uh, he was mana from heaven for not just New York Times, but CNN and the cable news networks. They would say so. I mean, they, I don't think they, they made any secret of it. So now the man is gone, um, and they're going to try and pound him, I suspect, into the ground, even though he's not there anymore at the White House. But that's diminishing returns. So it's interesting to see whether this enormous growth in, uh, in subscribers, in digital subscribers that they enjoyed, the New York Times enjoyed uh, over the last four years, continues. And so part of what they're doing to make it more than just about Donald Trump, as they caricature right. Trump uh, on and off, they they are redefining and, and rewriting American history by thing through uh, underwriting things like the 1619 Project. Yeah, I want to make it very clear. I don't have a political axe to grind. I am an analyst, and I think there is a lot of reporting on the other side that is equally as vehement and extreme and as polarizing. But the point that I find fascinating about the New York Times is they don't believe themselves to be that way. They, they believe themselves to live in this Olympus of, of objectivity, mm. even if they themselves are saying that objectivity should be done away with in certain uh, categories like Donald Trump. They explicitly said that again and again and again, uh, and I think followed through with it. You know, the, the tremendous question of the New York Times newsroom was, why can't we use the word racist every time that Trump addresses the subject of race? 
and, and that caused all kinds of controversy in, in that organization. But by now they're doing it. Well, that's right. I mean, and, and look, David Remnick, a uh, New Yorker and one of the, the leading lights of the uh, journalistic left, uh, said right from the outset that uh, all of the uh, old rules are suspended. They're gone. So it, it struck uh, people, I think, initially as just antagonism because they were so stunned by the results, so outraged by the result that they were going to spend four years make, doing their best to undo it. And that's part of the motivation. But I, I think the, the key insight here that, that you provide with the addition of some historical context is that, um, you know, maybe they didn't even anticipate how well it, work, it would work financially initially. But once it started working financially, then it was really to, uh, pressing your foot down on the pedal. Oh, yeah. I don't have any inside information, but I'm personally persuaded that they had no clue. This whole idea of abandoning objectivity and trying to treat Trump as a dangerous person, that was the word they use, came from partisan herd instinct. I mean, they really sincerely believed that to be true. But then the numbers started to get real good, and they realized that they had this money machine in Trump. And you're right that after that, they just, well, I mean, what could be better, right? I mean, you are being sincere in your loathing of this man who is president. And at the same time, you're making money on, on him. So it, it, it's a perfect situation. So then, as you write about uh, in, in your piece in City Journal that I've uh, been referencing, the history reframing mission is now in the hands of a deeply self-righteous group that has trouble discerning the many human stopping places between true and false, good and evil, objective and subjective. Well, if that's true, what are some of the potential ends we could experience here? Uh, do we have sort of social disintegration before we have outlets like uh, the New York Times go away or, 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 or become marginalized, you know, based on their own conduct? I think the latter. I mean, I, I think in the end, if you, if you choose to become a, a church, which is essentially what, what the New York Times has, has opted for, well, you will have your, your congregation. But if you are not of that congregation, nobody's going to listen to the preachers, right? So um, I think it's going to be marginalized. I think already newspapers and, and everything that I wrote in that, in that city journal piece was based on the analysis and, and, and observations of, of this brilliant media scholar, Andre Mir. And he, he believes that newspapers are, are essentially doomed. Uh, and they're doomed for demographic reasons. You reach a certain age level, uh, the, the Zoomers, the post-millennials, and they, um, they have never heard, held a newspaper in their hands. Most millennials have not held a newspaper in their hands. My children are millennials. They have never held. They're very well informed. They have never held a newspaper in their hands. So um, what you will have is this kind of legacy system, uh, more or less selling a, a, a creed to people who believe in it and who want, you know, articulate preachers to tell them what they already know. And uh, the rest of the world will, will treat it as a very marginal thing. We should not think of the New York Times as what it was. That's true of many institutions and organizations today that are sort of being crunched by, by, the, digital, by the digital tsunami. He is Martin Gurry. He's a former CIA analyst, and he's the author of The Revolt of the Public and the Crisis of Authority in the New Millennium. Martin Gurry, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Yep, happy to be here. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is, this is the Dan Proft Show.